you would turn in God's word to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 21 through 32, but our focus will be on only verses 21 through 24. As you're turning there, brief word of explanation. We've been going through the canticles of Advent, the songs of Advent, and we now come to the songs that occur after Christ's birth, and particularly here as he comes to the temple. We're not going to deal with the song that Simeon sings today. We will deal with that next time. But today we deal with rather the setting of this song. And I want to say before we begin, these details are not the primary point of this main section of Scripture. I want to explain what I mean by that. What I mean is Luke is presenting rather more background material that's significant, but presenting material and setting for what's occurring. But I want us to focus on this, these verses that set up the setting, the situation in which the song occurs, in which Simeon praises the Lord, that we would understand what is going on here. We will read of what was the counterpart to baptism in the Old Testament of circumcision of Christ himself. We'll read of other Old Testament ceremonies that Christ had undergone as he was an infant himself, and see what that means. Before reading this text, let's ask for God's blessing. Dear Lord, we turn to your word and to your gospel, a gospel that is a good news, a good news of a coming redemption, a good news of the arrival of an exodus, an exodus from exile, the exodus from the exile of sin and death. We read of the good news of our Savior, we read the events when he was a mere baby, when he was days old, when he was months old, and yet the careful preparation, all that occurred in his life for a rather profound purpose, one that affects us greatly, one by which he even establishes the sign that we saw earlier in baptism as all of these things take place to provide for us, your people, a salvation, a redemption, and a true good news. May we hear it and respond to it in praise. Amen. Luke 2, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. That is where we will stop our reading. We will be focusing again on verses 21 through 24, the setting of this song. 
People of God, the word of the Lord, Scripture, is rich beyond all measure. If I could compare it to something, I'd compare it to a diamond or a jewel. Perhaps a jewel that's multifaceted, that has deep color. Depending on how you look at these jewels, they will reflect light differently. Depending on how deeply you gaze into them, you will see different structures and beautiful arrangements of the Lord's hand in creation itself. You see, you can twist the jewel various ways and see what it's like. And yet, as a jewel, there are some facets, there are some aspects of this, this jewel that might just pop, that might be very easy to see. You might not have to dig that deep to be able to appreciate the beauty, to be able to appreciate, appreciate what it conveys. And yet there are other aspects of a fine jewel that you do have to. You take out that, that, that magnifying glass. You take out that and you look deeply into it and you gaze at it. It takes more work. It takes a little understanding of what's going on here. And then you appreciate a different facet, a different angle of that beauty. And what we see in our, our text today is both. You see the song of Simeon and the response of Anna. We didn't read that response, but what comes in the text That's pretty evident. You're able to see the light shining there, the glory just displayed. And yet, God's glory and the beauty in his word is portrayed as well in the setting and the details, the situations that occur. And that's why I want to do something just a bit different today, and that's really look at this situation and this setting. That we would see what's going on as there is so much fulfillment that Luke mentions. It's important, that's why he mentions it. But we might not, as we're so far removed from that setting and situation, understand what's going on and and the depth and beauty here as we look at God's jewel, the gaze at a different angle. And what we first look at could be summarized under the point, a Jewish family's obedience. This is our first point, a Jewish family's obedience. Obedience. I say this because at the very least, that is what the text and in these beginning verses is emphasizing. Look what Joseph and Mary are doing. Here they come. They come to, to do what the law commanded. They're being obedient. And the text repeats that. They come out to, to keep the law. According to the plain observation, though, of this simple act, if you are to just read it, what you would see would seem as plain as anything else. You would see a Jewish couple coming to the temple, coming so that the mother could be purified, coming to present a consecration offering to the Lord on behalf of their firstborn son. This was all very common. It was so common that no one would have looked at this and and even gave it a second thought but these two old saints. These two old saints in the text who actually see in in this, this common ceremony, which conveys great realities, but nonetheless in this common ceremony, the fulfillment of their life. That's why we did read what Simeon says. He he counts his life fulfilled. He can depart in peace because he's seen the Messiah in this very ordinary situation and setting. It would be like in this baptism... And I'm not trying to demean what baptism means. I'm trying to say we see baptism all the time. It conveys great realities, but we see it. And it's like if one of us were to stand up and and to count their life fulfilled in having seen this baptism. Now, now obviously, the reason it's so magnificent is, is that it is the Messiah. And yet, it's magnificent because of what the Messiah is doing. As Simeon and Anna see what he's come to do. 
in fulfillment of all the rites and ceremonies that are being performed even on him, an infant. And that makes the the beauty of even these details just shine bright and they pop. Verse 22 begins, after explaining the circumcision, we'll get back to verse 21, but anyways, verse 22 begins, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And I want us to first, as we delve into this great jewel of the sacrament, of what's going on here, to see the the beauty of the gospel. Notice the irony of what was happening. You see Joseph and Mary bringing the Lord, okay? We can't forget that. It's already been announced about Christ, Son. So they are bringing the Lord to present him to the Lord at the Lord's house, fulfilling the law of the Lord. Notice that irony. Notice what happens. And this is just, this is full everywhere in the gospel. Every time Jesus takes a step, this, this irony is there. And theologians of old have pointed to it. How could the Lord God Almighty walk the earth? How could he undergo rites of purification or cleansing or dedication? How could he be born of a woman? How could he come to a temple as a little baby to his own house, as it were, to fulfill a law that is his law? You can't read a word of the Gospels without that truth being there, and and we should see that. We should see that everything that happens in the Gospels conveys that beauty of the Lord who comes even here as it's the Lord coming to the Lord at his house to fulfill his law, which is his Father's law. You see, we can understand and read it with that Trinitarian understanding and the depth and beauty of what's going on there. And that's, that's more just right there. That's just the side point we're making, and you see that beauty. But then, verses 23 to 24 explain what Joseph and Mary are doing and why. You see, Luke, in this brief little segment, is combining several Old Testament ceremonies and laws, and he's telling his audience they were fulfilling these things in the law. This is what they came to do. Verse 21 had already provided the information that Jesus was circumcised at the end of eight days. Now we see Joseph and Mary continue in that, and they do that first in a purification rite, second in the consecration of the firstborn, and possibly third, in a dedication of Christ to the Lord himself. And we see that all present, these certainly first two ceremonies that they're performing, and possibly this third additional one that wasn't required, and yet they're bringing and doing to the Lord. But I want us to understand the Old Testament background. I want us to understand what and why they're doing this. Leviticus 12, 1-4 explains the first part of what they're doing. It's a purification ceremony for Mary. Mary had given birth, and this is what Luke 12, 1-4 says. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. What Leviticus is presenting is this need for purification. The flow of blood that made her unclean in childbirth. The loss of blood that was a sign of the curse. That's a result of death. A loss of blood. It's just that itself. Obviously, this is occurring in a birth, a sign of life. But for all those who were to enter the temple in order to be clean, there couldn't be this flow of blood. made one ritually or ceremonially unclean. And so she must be cleansed. The mother who gives birth 
gives birth must be cleansed. And if it's for a male child, there's that seven-day period, and then the, the son is, is circumcised, and 33 days after that, the, the woman would come to the temple to present these sacrifices. Leviticus 12 goes on to say that the law's stipulation was for such, such a one to bring a burnt offering and a, a sin offering. And it commands that they were to bring a lamb and a turtle dove for both these offerings, but that if they were poor, they could bring two birds. They could bring these instead and substitute that for what would be a rather expensive burnt offering in a lamb. And so we see right now that Joseph and Mary are apparently poor. That's the offering they bring. They bring the birds doesn't mean that they were absolutely destitute, but it means they didn't have the means where they could just bring a lamb for a sacrifice, and so they bring these birds. And even in here, you see Jesus identifying with the poor and the lowly, those he had come to save. And the, the purification was, like I said, a burnt offering and a sin offering. Now, what did those mean? Okay? I want us to understand the, the, the workings and the mechanisms of the temple. What's going on? Why would they do this? So... A woman would come to present a burnt offering. A burnt offering signified utter consecration to the Lord. A life of self-denying obedience. The entire sacrifice would be burned and communicated in that sacrifice as the entire offering would be burned and rise to the Lord was that one of, of formal dedication and of restoration and of restoration through a blameless substitute. So the idea here is that they, that one, through this blameless substitute, is being wholly lifted up to the Lord and restored to Him. That's conveyed in a burnt offering. But a woman was also to sacrifice another animal for a sin offering. What does the sin offering convey? The sin offering is often understood to be an atonement for unintentional sin. Similarly, similarly, it's sometimes viewed as a guilt offering, removing the consequences for lack of perfection, removing the consequences for the fact that you are just simply unholy. It symbolized life through blood, and it was used to ritually wipe away the defilement of sin, of death, the impurity of, of blood loss itself that needed to be dealt with in that picture of cleansing. So that's what's going on in this first ceremony. Mary and Joseph are coming to present these sacrifices for her cleansing. The second ceremony alluded to is with the Son, consecration of the firstborn of the Lord. This has a rich Old Testament history. Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. The Lord claims them. He claims the firstborn male. They're mine. And the animals, the firstborn animals that open the womb that are male, were to be offered to the Lord. They were to be sacrificed. And the firstborn of men, they were to be ransomed or redeemed. They were set apart. They were consecrated. This has its, its beginning, its foundation in the Passover itself. When the people of Israel were in Egypt and when they were spared by the blood of a lamb. And the firstborn of Egypt died. And yet this rite was to continue. And God laid a claim on even Israel's firstborn. You see, there was a sense in which that was always required of them. The firstborn didn't belong to them. They were owed to the Lord. They were set apart for that purpose. The tribe of Levi, the, the tribe of the, the priests, 
ended up being a sort of ransom themselves. You see, they were set apart to be the priests, and so they didn't have an allotment in the, in the land of a, of a territory. Their allotment was to be the intercessors for the people. They would serve in capacity as that firstborn dedication in service to the temple. But for those who were not to do that, there was to be a ransom, a redemption price. And I want to read that from Exodus 13, verses 11 to 16. We're, we're laying the groundwork, okay? That's what we're doing here. We're laying the groundwork for all that's occurring in this gospel text. Just these few verses has all this meaning behind it. So Exodus 13, 11 to 16. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites... As he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? you shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So this is established, it was that reminder of the very exodus and deliverance that they had undergone in history. And then Numbers 18.15 explains how this was to occur. It says, The firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price, at a month old, you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So we've compiled the details, all right? There was this need for the the mother to be purified. There was this need for the firstborn man to be redeemed, and as the law would say, to be redeemed by these five shekels. So here they come to undergo a ceremony, undergo these purification rites and ransoming. All this was to show what was required of them. All this is to, to point to someone to come. That was the point of all these ceremonies. And so here, again, is that beautiful irony. So as these rites are being performed for and in in proximity to the Lord's own birth, he's actually the one who's come to to, to fulfill them and to redeem them. And so the Passover lamb itself, that this is pointing back to, is fulfilled and points to Christ himself. And so the rite that's being performed here His consecration to the Lord is the one he himself would fulfill. That's that beautiful irony. That's that even as this shadow is performed on him, and I'm going to use sacramental language here, don't don't misunderstand it, but I want to convey a point, In, in Christ and in all these signs that are being performed, here the sign and the thing signified have joined together. Here the very meaning of all of this That had occurred in the Old Testament. And just imagine, just imagine the sheer number of sacrifices and women who have come to be purified and bowls that were offered, burnt offerings, sin offerings, the sheer number of them point to him. And he has that very sign 
placed on his own head. And yet, here's the difference. You see, the difference was, for everyone else, it looked forward, and it kept you safe, and it kept you, one, to be set apart from the punishment, set apart from defilement, and for him, it was to lay it on him. He would be the one to bear it. And God has orchestrated it in his plan that it would be carried out on his own son, even as an infant as God the Father sovereignly guides, even through the obedience of this Jewish couple. Through their obedience, the Lord performs these very things that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would perform. So those are the first two things. Now, I had mentioned a third possible one. Now, why why mention that? There's a possible thing that Joseph and Mary are doing here, a possible ceremony that wasn't required. And why might the text give that possibility? Notice, Luke didn't mention that Joseph and Mary bring a ransom payment. The text doesn't mention that they bring those five shekels. And it's also true that the presentation of the son at the temple was not required for this ransom payment. And so Luke doesn't mention a ransom payment, and you hear from Luke that they bring the Lord Jesus there to the temple to dedicate him, to present him to the Lord. And so what may be occurring here is something very similar to what Hannah did for Samuel in the first few chapters of Samuel, dedicating him to the Lord. You see, in that sense, the the requirement of payment might not need to be offered because he was going to perform this service. He was dedicated to the Lord. He would be performing these things. Now, the reason I can't say that's for sure what's happening is because Luke doesn't say that for sure. We're, we're looking at the details. We're looking at what the text says and doesn't say. But it's very likely, it's very possible, that they were doing that as well. They're bringing their son there to dedicate him to the Lord, going beyond the requirement of the law, because they know who this is. And so they come, just as Hannah did with Samuel, to dedicate him. He's the Lord's. His life is the Lord's. His life is to be in service to the Lord. And those are these three elements, these three possibilities. This is the the matter of Joseph and Mary's obedience, the Jewish couple's obedience. And before we move to our next point, I just want to mention that. Look how the Lord operates through simple obedience of his people. They, perhaps unknowingly, Certainly not fully. They may have had an idea of what they were doing, but through their simple faithfulness to the law of the Lord, were were fulfilling so much of the Old Testament. Through their simple obedience. That is a reminder for us as well that we are to fulfill the law of the Lord. We are to walk in obedience. That's that's a bit of a, a, a what we draw from the text, of a bit of application. Just as the Lord works through his plans, through their obedience, so he does through ours. Now, one might say, but wait a second. The Lord's sovereign. Doesn't he work just as much through our disobedience as he does through our obedience? The answer is yes, but there's a profound difference in the two. In the one, due to your faithfulness and your walk to the Lord, you are working in tandem with the will of the Lord. And through your faithfulness and your obedience, the Lord is carrying it out. In the other, the Lord is working out his will, but it's one that condemns you. In disobedience, it's one that you're not working with the grain, you're not working in fulfillment with the Lord, but against. It's a rather minor point, but one that we can draw from the text, because you see how much the text is referencing what they were doing in obedience to the law. There's that repeated call 
that they're fulfilling the law. They're doing what the Lord commanded. Now we come to our second point, and that's all background. And here's really the point, the real meaning of the message. It's that Christ was born under the law. That might sound a bit underwhelming, that Christ was born under the law, that Christ had ceremonies performed. Why make such a big deal of that? When you include verse 21, as well as these other ceremonies done to the Son, he is one thoroughly born under the law, who has all of the law applied to him, just as every other Israelite son would have had. As I already mentioned, notice the repetition of law here. In the text, in our verses that we read, there are four references to, they did this according to the law of Moses, or as it is written in the law of the Lord, or according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And if you scan down past our text to verse 27, it says, When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. In this passage, then, we have four repeated references That this is fulfilling the law. You see, it's making it unescapable that this is the reason they're there. They're fulfilling the law. They're being obedient. Yes, we already talked about that. But this is to Christ. He's having these signs done to him according to the law. So there's greater depth and meaning here. What is it? Galatians 4, 4-5 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's incredibly important that the Lord was born under the law. It's incredibly important that he was circumcised. That he would be later baptized by John. That he would live a life under the law. And we know that. We know that in Jesus' life, in his ministry, he had to perform this. But it had to occur before his earthly ministry. What this text shows us is even as an infant, the Lord was preparing the Redeemer. The Lord was preparing the Passover lamb. All that needed to be done, all that needed to be required of the one who would redeem us, that we would be adopted as sons, was being done for him. Even these signs. The point of the message is that Joseph and Mary's obedience helped fulfill this gospel truth, and it's just the one I read from Galatians. Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why is that beautiful? Why is, how does that matter to us? Thorough. Thorough. Exact. Nothing unturned. Nothing left behind. Thoroughness. That's our Messiah. That's our Lord's plan. You see, as we gaze at the beauty of this gospel jewel, in turning it this way, you see its intricacy. When we go back to those Old Testament texts and read the details, the numbering of the days, what 
animals were to be sacrificed and why. It's so minute. It's so exact. Why? Well, it's to reflect the exactness of our redemption. Now, why does that itself matter? Can we doubt? Can we doubt our salvation? Can we doubt that our sins are forgiven when you see just these few verses and the pains, if you want to call it that, the pains that the Lord took to make it exact, to make it so thorough that even as a baby, he was marked for this. That throughout his entire life, everything that had to occur to make him a worthy substitute for us happened. Now you might say, hey, now I, uh, I struggle. I struggle with sin. You don't know my sin. You may say, I was a horrible parent. My kids turned out the way they did because of me. You may say, I've hurt everyone in my family. I continue to fail. I'm guilty. And you might struggle to be able to see that it's washed away. And you think, it can't be because I'm so bad. And even in this text, what do we see but an exact and thorough Savior? So that he was born under the law and all its stipulations and fulfilled every single one of them so perfectly, there's nothing left to condemn you. There's nothing left. You may have made mistakes. In fact, you certainly did. We all do. And they're bad. Not to be made light of. They're terrible. And so you see the thoroughness of our Savior. The exactness that the Lord required of one, as Galatians says, born under the law. That's what that means. Born under the law. Born under the law in a way, and in a sense that we aren't. What do I mean? I mean under the full weight of it. Like I said before, you see those sacrifices that were required were ones, in a sense, you could say it this way, to deflect the wrath, to protect from the judgment. That didn't happen for this little baby. He would be the burnt offering. He would be the sin offering. He would be the circumcised flesh that was cut off because of its sin. So not only was he born under the law in, in order to fulfill it, he was born under the law in its weight and its judgment. But this is why I wanted to pause here. So those of us might struggle and turn to a text, and as again we gaze at a jewel and a facet we may have not actually stopped and looked at before and see, why did Luke include this? Why did the Lord ordain this? It's so that we would see we have so one so perfect, our ransom, our substitute, our circumcision, born under the law to fulfill it perfectly. And then, dear brother and sister, how can we doubt? 
How can we doubt that our redemption is exact and thorough and full? Galatians says the reason it was born under the law to redeem those of us we were under the law. And then it ends so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the goal. It's a reason for all these things. Do not doubt the love of God and don't allow yourself any opportunity to hold on to doubt in your own guilt. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, our Father in heaven, you have given to us a word and a gospel good news, and its fullness we can't ever fully grasp. Even as we look in this this text, we see an exactness to your redemption, a thoroughness to it that astonishes us, and one we still don't comprehend. And we pray in response we would receive this gospel word and have our faith nourished, have our faith strengthened, to know that no guilt can cling to those who are redeemed by this child. All the stipulations and judgments of the law fell upon him and not upon us. There is no guilt to remain. There is no responsibility no, that we bear any longer as our mediator was so perfect and was born under the law for us. And we thank you for this truth. We pray that it would give to us hope. And we pray that it would, through the outworking of the Spirit, cause us to obey and to live in response to this truth and gratitude and thanksgiving. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.